So welcome back again to the second part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane. We're wondering what to do today because there was a number of things um, that we spoke about off and on uh, over the last few weeks. And we said maybe we might just do a program to highlight some of the things that might be happening within the church in the week that we chose to do this program. So this particular week, there's a few issues that we might, or points, uh, points that we might just bring to listeners' attention. So Shane, you might kick us off with where you'd like to start. Yeah, so I'm actually going to start with something which is particularly Irish. Um, now we're going to go around the world a small bit, but there is something which I kind of want to bring up to people's attention, and I think it's very important that people are aware of it. We have a very strong tradition in Ireland of mass cards and mass intentions, particularly for funerals. And now there's there's a whole other debate and discussion to be had around that particular tradition and where it comes from, but it is a particularly Irish phenomenon, actually. Um, I, I, I've had this conversation with people from other countries and they, they've make, made the point that it's a particularly Irish phenomenon of mass cards and, and mass intentions. And people I remember a couple of years ago, there was a whole thing about who could sign mass cards and whether or not mass cards could be, or pre-signed mass cards could be sold in shops. I came across an article recently on the Pray Tell blog, which is by Father Neil Xavier of Dunahoon. He's a man that he sometimes writes for the, the notebook at the back of the Irish Catholic. And he's also a contributor to this blog. And he made the point about, there's a, raised a concern about pre-signed sympathy cards. Now, so people might remember there a couple of years ago as well, after the Charities Act was passed, there was a High Court challenge taken by um, a McNally man from up the country. And he went all the way to the High Court. And he contested that the, the law conferred a monopoly on the sale of mass cards to clerics of the Catholic Church. Now, it turned out that this gentleman, one of the reasons he took the court case was he was one of the major dealers in pre-signed mass cards. He was selling up to 120,000 of them a year. And he had an arrangement with a priest in the Caribbean, or in the West Indies, rather, where he paid him 3,600 annually for the collective masses a month. So that gentleman, he lost his court, he lost his court case and the, the High Court upheld the law that basically signed mass cards cannot be, pre-signed mass cards cannot be sold in shops. Now, the interesting point that this blog post made was at the moment if you go into shops around the country and post offices and so on you will see what are called pre-signed sympathy cards on sale here and it's important to draw people's attention to the fact that they are not mass cards okay they are not mass cards um, you know, but for many people, and particularly, you know, even people of very good intent that would be doing their best, it's just to draw their attention to it. It's basically, the card says, the intention of the happy repose of the soul of whoever will be remembered in the prayers of ex-Catholic priest. Now, that's not mascard. That's like me or John or somebody else saying, we'll remember somebody in our prayers, you know? Um, it's not the same thing. And I just wanted to draw people's attention to it. Um, you know, it's it's just it's, because a lot of people might think it is a mass card. It's not. It's a signed sympathy card. There is a difference and people should be aware of it. 
And I know myself recently, our, our own family, like we had a recent bereavement and we got, as, as tradition, we got lots and lots of mass cards and we got quite a number of these, what were pre-signed sympathy cards. And I know we, we mentioned it to one woman in particular and she was absolutely shocked when she realized it wasn't the mass card. It wasn't a mass card and because that's what she had thought she was getting. And she was quite upset about it, by it actually. Um, so just to draw people's attention to it, if you're buying pre-signed cards in a shop, in a post office, they are not mass cards. They are whatever you want to call them. They're a sympathy card, but they are not mass cards. So just to draw people's attention to that. Now, the next thing I want to draw people's attention to, uh, just as we go through, is that this weekend, the International Eucharistic Congress is being held in Hungary. And all going to plan, Pope Francis should actually be attending on the Sunday. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting one. The, it's the 52nd International Eucharistic Congress. It's been held in Budapest from the 5th to the 12th of September. So people remember we had the 2012 one in Dublin. And it's, it's, so I went ahead. Now, obviously, it was delayed for a year because of COVID. So it was, it was supposed to be IEC 2020. Um, but it's just, it's an interesting one. Just um, if people wanted to check in and, and see what was going on. Um, obviously, uh, there's, there's, there's a couple of things in terms of you know, the Pope's participation, particularly given the political situation in Hungary with their, with their president. Um, one thing, though, that jumped out at me and I thought was an interesting article is their Metropolitan Hilarium. Now, this guy, he was, I remember listening to this guy in Dublin during the Dublin Eucharistic Congress in 2012. Now, who is this guy? He is a bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church, okay? And he's, 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 he's high up. He's the equivalent, how I put it to you guys? It's, he's the equivalent of their Minister for Foreign Affairs and dealing with um, external dealing with states and dealing with other churches but he's 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 an important guy and obviously you know very much high up in in the hierarchy but he gave a lovely talk actually about how catholics and the eastern orthodox are united in belief in christ's real presence um and he this was the opening catechesis at the congress in in budapest on september the 6th and during the catechesis, he outlined the Eastern Orthodox understanding of the Eucharist. And while he says the Catholics and Orthodox are not united in the Eucharist, but they are united in the conviction that in the Eucharistic bread and wine, after their consecration, we have not just the symbolic presence of Christ, but his full and real presence. And it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting talk. It's an interesting reflection. And I would definitely be encouraging people to have a look at it. Um, obviously, we'll keep an eye out as well to see what Pope Francis is going to do during his trip to, um, to Budapest today. And of course, then he is going on further then in terms of he's going visiting uh, Slovakia. And he is also going to visit uh, the Czech Republic in the following few days as well. Very much a flying visit. I think it's like it's a, like his his trip to his trip to Budapest is like literally that day, mm. um, you know. So there's 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 there is the whole lot happening. You know, he's, he's literally going in for the closing mass, and that's pretty much it. Um, and then he's he's going on to to visit 
the, the Czech Republic and to Slovakia. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's an interesting one because the Czech Republic and Slovakia, or the Czech Republic in particular, is a country which has a very low participation rate in any form of religion. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's Christianity or otherwise. And it is a consequence of um, many years of communist rule in the country. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one the Pope is going to visit. Um, there's also it's there's there's unfortunately there are divisions within the Christian churches in the Czech Republic, uh, going back to the Middle Ages and the, the Protestant Reformation and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, so it'll be an interesting one to see what happens in terms of his trip uh, next week. Shane, just before you move off that subject now, um, it was certainly news for me that um, that the the Russian. Orthodox Church, is that who you mentioned, are as yeah. close as the Catholic churches in terms of their belief in the Eucharist? I didn't think they were that close. And that draws well, the next question is, what's the difference? <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so there are, many, there are many things that we hold in common. Like, you know, for example, we split from the Orthodox Church in 1054. And the split at the time, I think the general consensus was it... it it, it was a, it was lost in trans. It was something that lost in translation. So the churches east and west had grown separate over the centuries um, because of the collapse of the Roman Empire. There was problems between languages because they were in Greek and we were using Latin. Um, then there was kind of there was a dispute over the usage of the filioque clause in the creed. Now, what does that mean? When we say the creed, we say the, the, um, the spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's the line that we use when we say the creed on Sundays. The Orthodox Church say, no, the spirit proceeds from the Father, full stop. And it was the inclusion of that filioque clause that was one of the triggers for the split for the schism. Uh, because there was a disagreement of what it meant and who had the authority to insert it into a creed and, and all this kind of thing. So that's one. So down through the centuries, there's other things which we have disagreed over. So, for example, um, they view us as being kind of schismatic or heretical, depending which who you're talking to, and can get very upset about it. We didn't exactly make ourselves very popular with the Orthodox Church when the Fourth Crusade sacked Constantinople in the 1200s. Theologically, the differences... uh, the celebration of the divine liturgy, so the celebration of mass, they you, we use unleavened bread, the flat host. They use a, an ordinary loaf of bread. Um, there is distinctions about um, they have married clergy, um, though not their bishops. There's uh, their approach to divorce is slightly different. They do allow divorce people to remarry in the church, but it, there's particular terms and conditions attached. Uh, their understanding of um, original sin uh, is quite different to ours. So we rely on the on the guidance and the teaching of Augustine. It doesn't quite have the same um, in, in, uh, influence in the Eastern Church. There's also differences, primarily differences on their understanding of the papacy and the role of the Pope. It's one of the key crux of the issues between them and the understanding and the role of the papacy and, and how we understand it versus how they understand it. Um, there's also kind of a differences of opinion on the the two Marian dogmas. So that's the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Our Lady. There are similarities with us and them in terms of the Assumption and the Dormition, but they're not quite the same. 
And the Orthodox disagree with the way that dogmas were proclaimed because it relies on papal infallibility. Um, so that's that's kind of um, that's kind of things that kind of in a nutshell. There's a few other things as well, but they're kind of the key ones. So, so uh, another thing that we just wanted to mention to people was on the seventh of September, there was an unusual joint appeal by Pope Francis, Patriarch Bartholomew. He's the the guy in Istanbul. He's the ecumenical patriarch. And the Archbishop of Canterbury. So effectively, the three spiritual leaders of the majority of Christians on the planet, basically, they came together and they issued an appeal around the climate emergency. And um, it was basically a, 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 an appeal to the delegates of the upcoming climate summit, which is COP26, which is going to be held in Glasgow, to listen to the cry of the earth and make sacrifices to save the planet. It was the first ever joint statement, and um, and it's and they said that the coronavirus pandemic gave political leaders the unprecedented opportunity to rethink the global economy and make it more sustainable and socially just for the poor. We must decide what kind of world we want to live leave to future generations. They said, but they said the threat is no longer far off. And it was interesting. The statement sought to give a sense of urgency to the climate summit, and also it was um, it was issued on September the first, which of course, as we mentioned last week, was the start of the season of creation in the church, which is going on until the fourth of October, uh, drawing people's attention to the climate emergency. Linking in with that um, is an interesting in sick, uh, not encyclical, but pastoral letter, which the Archbishop of Dublin published. Now, people might remember, they might not. Um, Bishop Brendan uh, issued his own pastoral letter on climate um, back, I think it was uh, the Lenten pastoral for 2021. So the new Archbishop of Dublin, Archbishop Dermot Farrell, has issued one as well. And it's, 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 um, it's an interesting one. So it's one, it's just to draw people's, it's called the cry of the earth. And it's faith and science are not opponents. In a truly Christian view, faith and reason go hand in hand. And it's uh, obviously it speaks to, you know, approaches the climate catastrophe from the perspective of faith mm-hmm. um, and very much builds, of course, on the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si. And it's an, it's an interesting it's an interesting one. Um, the, the cry of the earth, the cry of the poor is a pastoral letter for the season of creation 2021. Um, now, hard copies are available from very task, but it is available as a PDF on the Dublin Archdiocese website. And I would definitely say to people, it's maybe one that they could pick up and have a perusal. And also to, you know, obviously, of course, then to check with Bishop Brendan's own pastoral letter on the climate um, and for the season of creation as well. Then uh, one other thing that caught my eye during the week was uh, that the 7th, so the 7th of, of September, which was Tuesday, was the centenary of the foundation of the Legion of Mary. It was founded on the 7th of September, 1921. Obviously, of course, uh, Frank Duff, and we mentioned him a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about potential new Irish saints. So Frank set up the Legion in Dublin. And of course, it's congratulations to legionaries uh, that would be listening and to those that are involved very much in parish communities. Still alive and well, very much. The Legion is still there and has done Trojan work over its centenary. 
I hadn't realized Frank was one of the few lay people to attend the Vatican Council and very much stressed the role of the laity in the church. Um, you know, I suppose it's interesting, going back again, Archbishop Dermot Farrell said Mass in Dublin at the Church of St. Nicholas of Myra on Francis Street on the 3rd of September. And his homily obviously was reflecting on the influence of the apostolate, um, you know, particularly, uh, and it, it's, it, you know, Frank saw the need, Frank Duff saw the need, uh, you know, to, to, to offer concrete ways for Catholic lay people live out the gospel of Jesus, its call and its mission in the contemporary world, supported by prayer, friendship, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit under the patronage and protection of Mary, who, had, who herself had been so open to the message of the angel. And it's, it's you know, it's, 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 it's a nice homily. And also our congratulations to the Legion on their centenary. And, you know, people should look around. It's still there. It's, and, you know, there was an interesting article. Mary Kenny had an interesting article in The Independent. And she was kind of making the point that, you know, sometimes, you know, over the years, legionaries have been seen kind of as holy joes. And it's an unfair characterization about them. You know, very much involved, of course, with prayer and faith and, and that. But also people of great human kindness and over the decades have been involved in helping people in, in great distress. And in particular, I don't know if anyone was watching Reeling in the years during the year, during the week, one of the things that caught my eye, they were showing people that had taken the boat to England and then the train down to London. And there was a woman uh, with the, the Legion um, stand at the train station to give guidance, you know, example for people where they might get accommodation or go look for work or stuff like that. You know, so it's just and that's some of the work that they've done over the years. And I, I just think it's it's nice to acknowledge the centenary and to wish them, you know, ad multis annus, you know, that there may, there may be many more years of it. Uh, and to those that are in the Legion, enjoy the celebrations as well. Yeah, I just I, thought it was an important one. I think it. I, I think it's important and a shame sometimes that some of the stories we do hear about the Legion come from certain people who might have a bias against them, whereas yes. the work I believe that, and I must read it up again, really, um, that Frank done in terms of helping out prostitutes and helping out those who had babies. I mean, I think one of the reasons was one of the ideas was that rather than separate the babies and the children from single mothers, that they they had homes for both of them, whereas the mm. state took the children away from the mothers. Frank didn't. Uh, th- those sort of ideas seem to be lost out there some, somewhere, you know. So they did do, I agree with, they've done some great work. Yeah, exactly. And it's, 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 it's definitely, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, we have had family connections. I know my own, I know certain members of my own family have been involved in the Legion over the years. And I know we still have the Legion in my home parish as well. I hope that they, they have some bit of celebration to mark its, its centenary in some way. Now, the other thing I just wanted to draw people's attention to was actually an interview that Pope Francis did recently. Now, yeah. I would safely say that the director of communications at the press office in the Vatican probably gets a coronary every time Pope Francis goes near a microphone. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> because he's a very difficult man to guide when he's doing formal kind of media encounters. Now, 
He was interviewed by a guy called Carlos Herrera, which was, um, it's a, 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 from a radio, I think it was an a, 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 a Argentinian radio station. And the interview was conducted in Spanish. But it was an interesting one because uh, they talked about various different things. So one was, there was rumors at the time, people might remember a couple of weeks ago, Pope Francis had surgery on his bowel. And he's still recovering. He's quite slow. He hasn't, he's not, Quite back to full capacity just yet, and um, obviously at the time there was a whole load of rumors that he was going to step down. So in the interview, he was very blunt. He said, "It never even crossed my mind to resign." And I thought that was an interesting one. Um, and obviously, he was making the point that uh, there was a nurse um, uh, who said, "Basically, you have to have the surgery," and basically, you know, explained that he needed to get it done. And that due to him convincing the Pope to have the surgery, that it kind of probably saved his life. Um, you know, so it's, it's an interesting one. Other things that uh, came up is um, the, his trip to Slovakia and to Hungary, which, of course, is the 34th trip of his pontificate. Uh, it was an interesting one. The Pope had a, had a diplomatic slip of the tongue because he was asked whether or not he was going to meet the, the Prime Minister of, the, of, of Hungary, and he said, I'm not too sure. I was like, oh, okay. So we'll see how that pans out. Um, then, as well as that, uh, he spoke about um, the situation in Afghanistan and also, I suppose, you know, his, his um, the worries that that whole situation has generated. Um, and then he had an interesting one. Pope Francis always brings up about the devil, actually. And he said, it, there was a question about, it's always said that the devil is delighted that people believe he does not exist. Does the devil also run around the Vatican? And the Pope laughing says, the devil runs around everywhere, <laughs> but I'm most afraid of the polite devil. So it's an interesting, he's an interesting, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, you know, and Pope Francis is, reminds people, it's not just a figment of the imagination. It is a presence that's there, um, you know, and they have, you know, we have to be on our guard against them very much so. Um but then, of course, else. there's, yeah. Sorry, Shane. There was something else within that interview then that, that, that caught my eye too, was that, uh, and you can put some flesh in this maybe, that, that before, before a conclave, before each conclave, the cardinals meet and talk mm-hmm. about maybe the shape that the church should be taking and the problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the Pope said within that uh, interview, now listen, what I'm really doing is just carrying out what we all agreed before the election of me as Pope. Well, there was something like that that he said. Yeah, so it, it generally it, it, it's accepted. So before before the conclave is held to elect um, to elect the new Pope, the cardinals will gather in Rome, and it's all of the cardinals. So it includes the ones that are over eighty and can't go into conclave to vote. And they have what are called the general congregations. And generally what happens at those is people will present on the state of the church and there will be reflections and talks and homilies given so that the cardinals have time to get to know each other, but also to understand what are the pressing issues that are there that the Pope, the new Pope will have to deal with. And the general consensus is that in the 2013 um, general congregations and in the conclave itself, there was a number of issues brought up, particularly around the management of finances and the reform of finances within the Vatican itself. 
and also the whole issue of dealing with child sex abuse scandals. So that's kind of, you know, whoever was going to be elected Pope in 2013 was being given clear instructions by the Cardinal that reform was needed. So that's what Pope Francis is talking about when he's talking about that. Um, it's interesting thing. He also spoke about, of course, that new, um, the, the restrictions of the Tridentine Mass in that interview. He spoke about the synodal patch in Germany and the worries and concerns that that's there, that that presents. Um, then there's also various different things about communication within the church and reforms within the Curia and, and the Vatican. And of course, also uh, the whole thing with, um, he spoke about the legalization of euthanasia in Spain, which was an interesting one, and uh, which has been legalized recently. And then, um, so it was an interesting interview. I would say to people, the full text that's available on vaticannews.va if you want to have a read of it. Uh, it's obviously in English now. The, the actual interview itself was conducted in Spanish, but it's 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 an interesting one that is there. So there were the few bits and pieces, John, just to bring to people's attention this week. Um, as just also to just to note as well that um, during the week there was a document issued uh, about the synod that's starting in in October. So Bishop Brendan mentioned this when he was on, was it last week or the week before? So there's going to be a Vatican Synod on, uh, the Synod of Bishops on synodality, but it's starting at the, the national and the diocesan level this October. And as it happens, the, the General Secretary for the Synod of Bishops in Rome issued a preparatory document which gives, sets out the guiding principles of the Synod on synodality that's due to take place. And it's sends out, it sets out 10 themes that are to be explored um, and which we will be exploring in Ireland in the over the coming months. And it, the interesting thing was it's, they made the point that synods is not just about meetings. It's a way of life, a way of living out our identity as members of the people of God. And it was also interesting as well that the, there was, during the press conference, there was a focus on the, on the synod and one of the things that was pointed out was synods are not parliamentary democracies, are something that's decided by majority rule. It's not what synodality means in the context of the church. And I thought that was an interesting point that needs to be kind of, you know, um, referred to again and again because it just it's it, it's the whole thing about managing expectations, um, just an understanding of what the process is. It's not going to be, a, you know, a citizens' assembly. It's not going to be the doll in action. You know, synod within a church context is quite different. Um, you know, it's it's and it's it's an interesting one. You know that the the what it means and what we'll understand it is kind of something that we will learn over the next couple of years. But it's, it, and it's just to make the point, synods have been an ordinary part of the church's life since the early centuries. Um, you know, this is not something new. This is not something novel. We were talking about the Orthodox Church earlier, John. The Orthodox Church are ruled and governed by their synods. Um, you know, that's that's how they work. That's what they do. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting one just for us to rediscover uh, of what it means. And very much it's focusing on a kind of a listening process uh, obviously, there was concerns raised about particularly things that have been going on in Germany at the moment, that their synodal path that's ongoing at the moment, and the fact that there are calls for 
challenging the doctrinal authority within the church. And the officials emphasized that the Pope is the ultimate point of unity and authority in the synodal process. And synodality does not mean either a parliamentary process or the introduction of majority view decision-making within the church. Instead, they said, moving the church to a more permanent mindset of synodality would allow the faithful to better exercise the prophetic function of all the people of God, which was articulated by the Second Vatican Council. So that's the few things, John, I wanted to bring to people's attention this week. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the only thing that really caught my attention there during the week, as well as what you've just said, is a, a, st- a statement coming from the, from the Church of England, from a Church of England bishop, uh, former bishop actually at this date, and the, the third, which was last Friday, the Right Reverend Jonathan Goodall, the Anglican Bishop of Ebbsfleet, explained that he'd taken a decision after a long period of prayer to enter into full communion with the Catholic Church. Now, of course, he's not the first uh, bishop to have done this. The 60-year-old 60, the 60 bishop was Bishop of Ebbsfleet since 2013, a, a role in which he acted as Provincial Episcopal Vicar, or Flying Bishop, uh, bishop supporting the Church of England yeah, congregations. So flying bishops within the Anglican Church, particularly within, within the Church in England, Church of England. So this was a compromise that the Church of England came up with when they decided to allow the ordination of women priests, women bishops, there were certain communities that were not comfortable with that. They didn't want to be ministered to by women bishops. So you had what were called the flying bishops, bishops that went around to service and help and, and, and um, to, to to give sacraments to those to those to those parishes. So he was one of those, and he's um, he's after, as they say, crossing the Tiber, uh, and is decided to become um, uh, a Catholic. It'll be interesting to see whether or not he joins the the ordinature of Our Lady of Walsingham, which is Anglican community within the Catholic Church in England, or um, what way he's going to work that. It'll be interesting to see what happens. John, just a, a nice one to finish things off, actually. So last one was a headline that caught my eye. Pope Francis sends 15,000 ice creams to the prisoners of Rome. That's a nice one. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, so he sent, he sent 15,000 ice creams to prisoners in Rome as the eternal city sweltered in the summer heat. And that was during the week just gone. The gelati were taken to the Regina Celi and the Rabibia prisons by the papal almoner, um, Conrad Trawinski, I think is how you pronounce the man's name. And the, 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 the almoner, this is the department that performs charitable acts on behalf of Pope. And it's um, it's an interesting one because they describe it as being a corporal works of mercy, which of course is to visit the imprisoned, and also just to 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 I suppose just to remind them and to remind ourselves that they, while they are prison, as 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 Sister Imelda reminded us a couple of weeks ago, you know there's still some mother's son, some mother's child, yep. um, someone's brother, someone's sister. They haven't lost their humanity even though they are in prison. Lovely touch. Lovely touch. It only take Francis to do it. Well done, Shane. Thanks a lot for bringing that to our attention. So now we go out with our second piece of music, I suppose. At this stage, uh, it's one by Seeds Family Worship, and this one is entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And this is uh, from Psalm 139. So join again in part two. Uh, excuse me, join us again in part three, where we read and reflect on the Word of God.
my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you Wonder.